All right, what's up to all the cinephiles out there? Welcome to another episode of the Marquee Spotlight, coming to you from the always sunny Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Spencer Bailey, and I'm here with my co-host. Now she has become death destroyer of tacos, Chelsea Burnett. That's me. That's me. Hey, Spencer. Hey, Chelsea. Well, that leads us into what the spotlight topic is. Of course, I'm quoting... J. Robert Oppenheimer with Oppenheimer out, take it over the world. Uh, we're going to do a full-on Christopher Nolan episode. I've kind of been holding this off and looking forward to it because we knew he had another movie coming out. And we said, well, let's wait till he has a movie. And then we can just go through his whole filmography. He's one of the biggest names in directing around the world of the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. So uh, looking forward to diving into that. Me too. Yeah. he um, He's in kind of a class all his own. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to do this deep dive with you. Agreed in many different ways. Uh, he is indeed, for better or for worse. Uh, I know that we teased uh, our guest, James Dowden, who's been on the show uh, several times, and big Christopher Nolan fan. He was going to come on uh, to do this episode with us, and he had a couple kind of major things come up. He's going to be out of pocket for a little while, and he regretfully had to bow out. Uh, he did uh, give us some notes on a few things, so I'll be sharing that. But he will be missed. Uh, but the show must go on. And he is here in spirit. Uh, I think always, actually. Yeah. Always <laughs> here in spirit. Uh, before we get into that, uh, I don't know if necessarily news, but, well, I guess some movie news we'll get into. Uh, we've gotten some, well, you know what? Some hot trailers. We have gotten some awesome trailers we're going to get into. But let's start with the sad news first. Dune 2 has been pushed to March. So bummed, man. But, you know, now we just get to look forward to all those fun Vanity Fair, Elle, all these, you know, news outlet promotional videos with Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya. So because they wouldn't be able to do that, you know, right now in a strike. So um, which is why I believe is the main reason why they had to push. It's the reason the strike, which I'm surprised. I feel like pre-production was was done i mean i uh, yeah i don't know i I guess uh i don't know what obstacle the strike's really creating at this point and also if dune 2 which was scheduled to come out the end of this year um is being affected by the strike what about all these other movies we're about to talk about um, or you know the trailers that we're about to discuss Mm -hmm. that are supposed to come out at the end of the year Mm. i would i mean they should be just as susceptible, I would think. Um, maybe they've been done for a while. Maybe, or maybe we're just, you know, this strike is is so interesting because it's it's literally something that feels like it could, it, from week to week, the outcome could be different. Or I should say the conclusion or the end date is, is always in question. So maybe it's just, a, you know, a gamble that these other studios are running with, uh, you know, premiering these trailers and hoping that the strike will be over so that they can use, utilize their actors, um, in promotion, uh, you know, promotional, uh, material for the film. So, That's a good uh, point. I, um, I don't know if just Warner brothers with Dune is being a little bit more cautious than others, but, um, uh, you know, but when you get, when you told me about it being pushed, I thought, Oh, that does suck. But, Hey, you know, it'll be a nice bright spot at the end of winter 
uh, something to look forward to when when Dune finally does drop. So yeah, my my first thought was, um, you know, I think Denny got kind of shafted with Dune one. I mean, it was up for all these Oscars. It won. What did it win? Like seven or eight, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. all the technical stuff. It was up for best picture and. Denny was not nominated for director, even though he's the one that orchestrated all of that stuff that it won. Um, so I thought this was, you know, a lot of people speculated Dune 2 is going to be like Return of the King. You know, it, it didn't get all of the recognition it deserved at the Oscars, so it's going to pick up for two. Mm-hmm. Does Mar- Moon It to March hurt it? I mean, Everything Everywhere All at Once came out of March last year. Yeah, there so, you go. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that has set a new um, standard or something. It, you know, it's... And I, I'll... I remember Grand Budapest Hotel, which didn't, I, it didn't sweep by any means, but it got Oscar attention. I remember that came out in, I think, beginning of the year, of the year that it, uh, it premiered. So, and it, you know, stayed in the conversation. So it, it has happened before. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. I mean, and in terms of the question we just asked, why is it going to affect Dune? but possibly not affect anything else. By the way, before we move on, actually, the Dune trailer came out. And well, actually, I think it's a couple trailers there have come out. There have been a couple, yeah. yeah. So I think I watched the teaser, and I was like, that's enough. I don't want to see any more. I'm tired of having oversaturated trailers. And so I think every movie I've gone to, the, you know, in the last few months, uh, when the Dune 2 trailer starts, the official big trailer, I kind of, like, duck my head down. So I haven't seen it. Uh, but I've seen the teaser there's the, you know, the flash of Christopher Walken. Okay, I was going to ask if you saw Christopher Walken. Yeah, yeah. I did. I did. Uh, but I mean, what I liked about the teaser was you got just a glimpse of Austin Butler, and I think you see a lot mm-hmm. more of him in the new trailer. I don't want to see it. I want to I want to take it in. You don't need to sell me anymore. I'm going to see Dune 2. And Austin Butler is playing the role that Sting played, correct? Correct. In the, okay. That is correct. All right. So um, will he live up to Sting? Yeah, big shoes. I can't say for sure, <laughs> but no, he won't. Um so we were kind of talking about why is it affecting Dune and maybe nothing else. Well, another trailer that's come out recently is Killers of the Flower Moon. Highly anticipated. Fascinating trailer. Kind of doesn't look like a Marty movie. Um, you it's know. like a little bit more um, polished. I don't know. If, I hope that's the right word. Just, no, yeah, I, I agree with that. Polished version then, uh, of the Irishman, I feel like. It's like... Yeah. Kind of like he's found his footing in the streaming world and how he can bring his gravitas, but also it's for Apple. So right, you know, which is interesting because yeah. Irishman was Netflix, so mm-hmm. he's not showing allegiance to a streaming platform. Mm-hmm. But you're right, you know his earlier movies very gritty looking. Um, you know, The Departed still kind of look well. I don't. Yeah, still kind of look like Marty, but he was kind of gave into that mid 2000 sheen Mm -hmm. um i i really i go back and see like some of the early 2000s movies and i find that sheen and everything had kind of grotesque to be honest with you (laughs) yeah i watched recently the marty freaking movie r.i.p by the way (laughs) marty freaking man we didn't even talk about that rest in peace buddy or billy freaking yeah billy freaking (laughs) william freaking uh dude i'm we're sidetracking here but i we haven't talked about it yet man he hey he wasn't young he lived a great life. Up Made and down. a huge, yeah, impression in cinema history. Absolutely. You know, look, up and down career. Made two of the greatest movies of all time. And then made Sorcerer, which fucking rips. To Live and Die in L.A., which I bought on 4K, fucking rips. And honestly, it took a lot of, I think, 
courage for him to make cruising. And I've heard a lot of people commend him for making that movie actually at the time. I know it was reviled and people mm-hmm. think it's maybe a bit you know, outlandish at times, but I think he really was <laughs> yeah, like most of the movie. <laughs> I think he really was trying to at least put a spotlight on a community, um, that a lot of people shied away from. So, uh, uh, did he do it the best service? I don't know, but he attempted to do something with it. So, yeah, I mean, have you seen it? I actually still have not seen it, but I think I was telling you and Lacey last week that I've listened to this podcast oh, that I right. love, Jiffy Pop Culture, and they've talked about it. Like, And I've listened to that episode probably five times, so I feel like I've seen the movie. Yeah, I, man, look, I, I, I don't know if I can comment. I mean, it's pretty absurd. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty absurd movie. Uh, there's some good acting in it. I, I mean, it's just kind of like there's these absurdities where – I mean, it's almost like the last shot of the movie is like Pacino looking into the mirror before the credits. And you could tell the the implication is that it's like, have I gone too far? Am I one of the gays now? And it's like, this is so ridiculous. But this is really entertaining. Anyway, RIP, William Freakin, you will be missed. Um, but I, I watched his movie that was filmed in Portland, The Hunted, with Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio Del Toro this past weekend. 2003 had that gross sheen on it. It just really bothers yeah. me. So it doesn't, yeah, you're right. It, it, it looks like a modern Marty movie, a subject that uh, you don't know if you'd even associate with a Marty movie. Mm-hmm. But he's and, bringing his boy Leonardo DiCaprio back. So. Well, and there's, they're already saying, get ready. This, this could clean up at the Oscars. Best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, best adapted screenplay. Um, I'm definitely, I want to see it in a the theater. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely an anticipated movie for the end of the year. And talking about, a certain sheen or style kind of got me thinking about the trailer for Ferrari with Michael Mann. Yes. And I can already see it's very Michael Mann, like just from the trailer. And he's someone who I think has always stayed very true, at at least from the nineties until present day uh, to a, he's got a definite, uh, a definite style uh, to his films. And I think this will be really cool to see, you know, uh, I said I jokingly said it's like House of Gucci Redux, but uh, <laughs> you I did text I, that to me. You did. I um I don't know. I I'm I I'm willing to give Adam Driver another shot with an Italian accent. Well, I don't think his accent was the problem with House of Gucci. I, I did like House of Gucci. I, I'm on record on this podcast. Uh, man, Michael Mann, baby, he's back. I think he's back. I have very high hopes for this movie. Did you see his Variety article interview? I did. Uh, no, I did not. Yo, in the title, he's basically like, uh, I'm too busy to get old and die. <laughs> I love it. But he like, so Black Cat, which was the last movie he did, uh, very problematic movie. It was one of those movies that I'm like, there's too much that I liked in here to say it's bad. But it's it's incredibly flawed. And there's just stuff that didn't work. And um, I, I did, I pre-ordered the 4K, which is coming out in October, because I heard there's an international director's cut mm. that people, people, it was, it's barely, it's rarely seen, but they're including it because people asked for it. So, and people said it's better. Okay. So I'm like, I want to see it. But he, he says in the interview, he owns up to the problems in that movie. He's like, mm. I know what was wrong. Script wasn't ready. That's on me. So I, and this is a long time passion project for him. So I think between that and him owning up to what didn't work in his last effort, I have very high hopes for Ferrari. Yeah. I I I 
ditto a lot of what you're saying. So, Also, he did admit in the article he has approached Adam Driver to play young Vincent. Oh, that's right. And he, too. You know, other rumors swirling, Oscar Isaac for, for young Neil, Austin Butler for young Chris. Listen, I read he, too. It is amazing. It's one of those books where you feel like you're on a on a roller coaster. I it, it exceeded my expectations. I cannot wait to see what the movie does. It's a lot. He's gonna have to shave it down, but let's let's go, baby. Yeah. Adam Driver is Vincent. I'm in. Yes, 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 yes. I can see. I can see him hitting all those same notes. So, yeah. And then that brings us to. Oh wait, 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 wait. Hold on. So when I heard Ridley Scott, oh yeah, was doing a Napoleon movie. I'm like. Uh, we'll see. Trailer came out. And I said, opening day, I'm there. Mm-hmm. I yeah. like, this man just made the gladiator version of Napoleon. Yeah, he did. Bringing Joaquin Phoenix back too, which uh, I loved the performance he got out of him in, in Gladiator. So I can't wait to see Joaquin in something that's not Joker because I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, nobody in the trailer is using a French accent. Don't care. Vanessa Kirby, looking like she does what she does best, being real intense. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he's got a four and a half hour director's cut ready to go. I'll 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 watch it when he inevitably releases it. Yeah, it'll probably be like Kingdom of Heaven all <laughs> over again. Uh, Which I'm not going to hate on that director's cut. <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah, we talked about it, mm-hmm. so uh, I'm all in. But lastly, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. We haven't talked about him in a while. He's, he's our show's mascot. It's our boy. David Fincher, Fincher is coming back. And Michael Fassbender is coming back. He's taking a break from racing cars and raising kids with Alicia Vikander. The killer trailer dropped. It was amazing. It tells us nothing, but it gives us just enough to get us hyped. I cannot fucking wait. It's going to be a Netflix. Don't care. Going to the theater. Let's go. It seems like he's kind of back and like... A late 90s mode with this. I don't know, based on the trailer from what I saw. But, well, you know who yeah. wrote the screenplay? Oh, is it? No, I don't. I can't remember his name. I feel so bad. It's the guy who wrote Seven. Okay. And Eight Millimeter as a side note. Oh, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I also did not recognize any of the actors' names after Michael Fassbender until Tilda Swinton. Agreed. So I was like, this may be a really great showcase for some new talent. Um, I don't know. But yeah, it's a very slick fun trailer so um i micah and i are already figuring out what we're gonna do because we don't have netflix anymore or access to netflix uh, you're gonna anymore, go to the theater so we'll go to the theater yes <laughs> yes we will go to the theater i just hope it's not too short like i want a, like a two hour 15 minutes mm. minimum please yeah yeah but- and potentially set it up for a sequel because I, th- I think it's based off a series of graphic novels oh, okay that could be great that could be great I um I mean, and I've I felt like the quality of work that Fincher has made under Netflix. I mean, it still feels very true to him. So um, this is going to be awesome. I agree. I mean, people weren't crazy about Mank, but I think that has more to do with um not enough people cared about the subject matter, but it was a really well made film. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Well, look, it's been a fun year. Really good summer. With the three mega movies in the summer, more to come. It's exciting. It is, yeah. The the movies are back. Yes, they are. 
All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back to discuss the filmography of Christopher Nolan. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. Until they've used it. Take you only so far. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. But we have no choice. And welcome back. And welcome to our discussion on the films of Christopher Nolan. Uh so Definitely one of my favorite directors. And it's gotten to the point where I don't like sharing that information <laughs> because I don't know what has happened in the last probably I'd say it's probably since about I say after Dunkirk was released, so two seventeen. I say starting about two thousand eighteen. He has become a really controversial director, and I don't understand why. I think I wonder if some of it is burnout. I mean, he kind of dominated his movies dominated the box office starting. I get really I mean, I I think Batman Begins did well. But I mean, The Dark Knight, I think, was probably his first we can point to major success uh, box office wise. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I don't I don't know if there's some burnout there. It's just fun to go after someone that's on such a high pedestal, maybe, you know, you feel like they're untouchable in a way. So it's like, if I hate on them, it's not even going to, you know, it, it it won't even, it doesn't really mean anything, but, um, you know, yeah, he is a very controversial figure, controversial light, I would say. I mean, he hasn't done yeah. anything that's like, been totally appalling or anything but um yeah he's got a he's got a definite style um there's a certain tone that he always kind of strikes in his films and that works for some people and it doesn't work for other people and um but i'm excited to kind of pick that apart as we go through his filmography so um and i think one of my biggest gripes with him, if I'm going to say, because I, I like him as a director, too, and I like a lot of his movies. It's I, how much I, I should say Michael Caine, right? <laughs> I don't have an issue with Michael Caine. Micah really does for some reason. What? But yeah, he, he he rolls his eyes and groans anytime he shows up in a uh, in a Nolan movie. But um, Listeners won't understand, but that's about part of the chorus with Micah. But go ahead. Um, But I... My my gripe, I would say, with Christopher Nolan is that he, the character work he does, it, what little I think work he does on his characters, it doesn't really work or resonate with me. So, but that doesn't have to be what a movie's all about is characters. I tend to go for movies that have really strong characters that um, 
really grip me. But I think he tends to go more for a gripping plot or idea of – so he's wanting to, um, I think, make his uh, audience think about like certain philosophical kind of uh, ideas that he has. And he uses the – I am I have to give credit to a critic, Amy Nicholson, who – was the first person who noted this and I heard her talking about it where she said that she feels like he uses his characters to service the plot. That's like what he's mainly concerned with. So, and when she said that, I was like, yeah, he really does. That was what rang true for me. I'm not saying it's every movie he makes, but that seems to be a common theme. And I don't disagree with that. I just don't understand why that's such a hot button issue for people. Right? Like, I'm a very extroverted person. You you know this about me. And, like, I like movies where there's deep human connection. And I, I've talked about that on the show, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even last, last episode with Sam, I talked about the deeper humanistic qualities of Barbie and things like that. That stuff's really important to me. Um, but that doesn't mean I need it in every movie. And, and, like, you're right. Like, Nolan, I think, does do that with the plot. But also... He really cares about the theater experience and he cares about the spectacle and the the like all encompassing experience of his movies. And yeah, unfortunately, that's at the expense of the characters and, and the dialogue, which I'm on record on the show saying he can sometimes not do great dialogue. Um, it almost seems like he's going for he's wanting to sound his characters or whatever is in the dialogue to sound deeper than it really is. So it can kind of be a little eye rolly at times, but, um, but yeah, I, why I do respect him. Um, I think first and foremost is his commitment to giving audiences an amazing theater going experience. Right. So, so what's the problem? That's kind of my, my perspective, <laughs> not, not to you, but to the people out there that, that seem to like, like there's no, middle ground Nolan fans. People are like, this guy's great. And they're like, I loathe this man. And I, uh, I mean, I'm exaggerating obviously, but that is kind of how film discussion happens online though. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, and I online think, is what mm. I'm talking about. And you got to take that shit with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly in recent times, and I mean, I'm on, I'm on the internet discourse, a lot of movies. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously you and I care about movies. I'm a letterbox head. I'm on letterbox every single day. Uh, I, I love that app. Um, and I see people talking about Nolan, and I see people say shit like, well, they're just annoyed because people who don't watch a lot of movies think Nolan is like, hold him in a higher regard than than people who watch a lot of movies think that they should. And I, I mean, like, look, yeah, if you watch Kurosawa, cool, great, good for you, man. Like, if you're watching Letterboxes, like, the top 50 of their top 250, yeah, you're a super cool guy that watches, you know, yeah, those are really amazing movies. Just let people like things. Yeah. You know, if somebody likes Nolan and they think he's a really great director, which, by the way, he fucking is. He is a good director. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, his strengths are not character development. Why can't we just focus on his strengths and just enjoy his fucking movies? I would be, I would love to see him direct a film that he didn't write or have something to do with the screenplay Mm. and see what he would do. But I don't know if it's an ego thing with him or he sees himself as this total auteur that has to, he will only direct something that kind of is a brainchild of his. But 
I, he's a very meticulous man. Yeah. I've been reading that book um, that I'm, I'll look up the author in just a second. Why, mm. you know, um, but I've been reading this book that this person wrote about him and he is just very meticulous. And he wrote early on in the book, it talks about how he, he the word he says the most is fascinating. He's, he, and the, the person listed off like within a week, I saw him say, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. It was everything from like grand topics to very small things. He's very, he's like, I've, and I think he gets really obsessed with things mm. and like learns everything he can about them. And that's yeah. why he's so meticulous in his movies. And look, Fincher is more meticulous than Nolan. And we yeah. love that guy. Yeah. And yeah. Nolan just wants things to be exactly the way he wants him. And look, the internet discourse, I, you know, whatever. I, I don't give a shit. Like I, I've seen the new, the new thing I've seen recently is now all of a sudden those same people are being like, uh, Quentin Tarantino actually not good. Like fuck off. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm not having this conversation. <laughs> well, um, so this revelation that I had recently about like, Oh, you know, I've come down, people have come down on Christopher Nolan for having weak female characters in his movies, but it, he has, I think uh, what I just said earlier that he doesn't put a lot of work into his characters to begin with. So why would we expect any different with the women that are in his movies? That's a great so point. I, I kind of was like, you know what? I have to backpedal a little on that. Um, I, I, uh, would it be great if there were more women in general represented on the screen in his movies? Sure. But at the same time, it's like he's in his lane in his wheelhouse with what he's comfortable with, what he knows. It kind of reminds me of Micah told me he read a quote um, of Christopher Nolan talking about why his, there isn't a lot of humor in his movies. And he said, it's because he just knows it's something. And I'm, I'm kind of butchering the quote, but I think the essence was he thinks that comedy is actually a very hard thing to achieve and do well at. And so he, he knows it's not his in his skill set to do it. So he kind of avoids it. He just doesn't, he doesn't because he, Michael, I think was telling me that his greatest fear would be that he were to put a joke in his movie and it not land. And then he would feel like because of his meticulousness and perfectionism that all is lost because of it. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess I could say, you know, if he doesn't feel comfortable writing about women, I, I, I guess, you know, hey, it'd be cool if he were to take a, a script from someone else that wrote about women and direct it. Maybe someday we'll see that. But for now, you know, I'm I'm not going to hold it against him uh, the way I used to. Are you I advocating for a Greta Gerwig, Christopher Nolan team up? Barbenheimer you know in Barbenheimer. real life. I like it. I like it. Let's do it. Yeah. And I mean, there's other directors that have that problem, right? I mean... We've talked about this on the show before. Ridley Scott, James Cameron, Quentin Tarantino do women very well. Um, Marty is one of the two or three most acclaimed directors of all time. And we were actually talking off air, but Lacey, my fiance, who's been on the show before, she appreciates Marty's movies, but she has said, like, I don't really like the way he does movies. He's quoted as not really giving a shit about female characters, but nobody criticizes Marty for it. But we have to go over Nolan go after Nolan, I should say. And I think it's a great point you made. He just doesn't focus on character development in general. And I think when you think about that and look back at some of his movies, some of his female characters are, aren't, you know, they're, they're better than we remember mm-hmm. in comparison to the male characters, which 
are not fully fleshed out either. And as we talk about the movies uh, one by one, I will definitely highlight my favorite uh, performances, both from men and women. But yeah, I'd love to talk some more about that. Some of some of the those those actors that just really stand out to me. Absolutely. Well, he's such an interesting guy. You know, he um, one parent was English, one parent was American, so he kind of bounced back and mm-hmm. forth between London and Chicago growing up. His brother Jonathan Nolan clearly spending more time in America because he has almost no British accent. Yeah. But Chris, who we do think is a British, I mean, he is, he was born in England, uh-huh. um, does have a deep connection to America. I mean, he really does. But he, you know, he had, a, he had, it was kind of like Spielberg, you know, um, speaking of humor, you know, <laughs> Spielberg made that, what was that movie? 1941 mm. uh, that bombed uh, with John Belushi and Spielberg was like, I think I'm a funny guy. But he had made a comedy, it didn't work. So even the great Spielberg, who I think mm-hmm. you could make the case as the greatest director of all time, not that there is a greatest director of all time, but if I had to... He's up there. If I had to do a formal debate, I think he'd be the easiest case make. But the movies that uh, Nolan really obsessed over as a child were 2001, mm-hmm. which... Totally reads on in his, yeah. There's no character development in that movie. That whole movie is a fucking spectacle. True. And it's one of the most revered movies of all time. But we have to criticize Nolan for character development. By the way, like, I cannot tell all of you listen out there. Earlier this year, I finally read the book for 2001. And it really does make the movie more enjoyable. I know you're supposed to just... But they came out at the same time in the same year. But Kubrick just wanted to show off. But yeah. we, we give Nolan shit. But anyway, 2001, Star Wars... I'm glad you mentioned that, though. That There's a little bit of, like, a hypocrisy there or something. Yeah. yeah. 2001, Star Wars, and Ridley Scott's filmography was what... Nolan really looked up to, and I think we, you'd agree, we could see all of that in what he does. And and then there are so many parallels between Heat and The Dark Knight. So I, uh, I, I think he, it's a really cool homage to sure. Heat, what he did in The Dark Knight. So, so much like Spielberg, uh, he borrowed his dad's Super Eight camera mm-hmm. and would make his own movies, and he would do like stop motion with his toys. He had Star Wars toys. But he changed it to Space Wars. Okay. So. <laughs> George Lucas, you can't sue him. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it really does remind me of Spielberg, especially now that Spielberg um, kind of gave us a peek into his life in the um, – what was the name of that goddamn movie? Oh, uh, the, 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 the Fableman. Jesus Christ. Folks, I am I'm just a, about six months away from – being 40 years old. And what does that tell you? I can't, I can't remember a movie I saw <laughs> in like January. Uh Oh, the dad jokes are already going to start. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so, let, so let's just go in. So what is the first Nolan movie you remember watching? The first Nolan movie that really made a s- impression on me is the dark Knight. That is, I, I had just graduated from high school and I remember roping a couple friends of mine, uh, Taylor, the, who did our, our cover art for our podcast, and my friend Megan. I remember talking to them like, are we going to go see this movie the day it premieres? Somehow they were I, – I feel – I still feel guilty about this. I roped them into going to like a 7.15 in the morning showing IMAX what showing freaking theater has viewings that early that I've was never at seen Bridgeport it. that was at Regal Bridgeport at 7 15 because I think the whole theater basically was 
taken up by dark night showings that were just happening throughout the day. And and, uh, we had to sit in the, I believe the front row. (laughs) And um, I, you know, so we got the crick in our neck, but I did get to see Christian Bale very up close and personal. And I, I really love him. So I, I wasn't hating on that experience. Um, but yeah, the dark Knight for sure. And then I bought the movie. I saw it two more times in theaters. So for a total of three times, then I bought the movie and my freshman year of college was spent showing anyone I could that movie if they hadn't already seen it. And, um, so I definitely became very obsessed with, with that for a while. I really, I, what drew me to it was because, was Christian Bale. I really didn't have a Batman. I didn't, I, it wasn't like I was a huge Batman fan to begin with. Had you with, seen Batman Begins? At that point, I may have, but I, I may have gone back and watched Batman Begins after seeing The Dark Knight. I can't really remember. So, yeah, that's my, that's my um, Christopher Nolan popping the cherry moment, I guess. Yeah, I, uh, I think, I guess the first movie I saw his was Batman Begins in theater. I'm not going to talk too much about the Dark Knight trilogy because James and I did an entire episode on Batman and dove deeply into the Dark or the Dark Knight trilogy. But yeah, I think I saw Batman Begins in theaters. I uh, thought it was crazy that they were doing this new Batman idea. And then when I saw it, I uh, remember thinking, that was actually pretty cool. And mm-hmm. then they give you the teaser at the end of the Joker card, and then you're just ready for what they're going to do next. You know, he's so fascinating because the Batman Begins is a perfect example of what I'm about to talk about is he likes to avoid, thankfully, CGI as much as possible, yeah. which I'm so thankful for. And I think that goes back to his love for Kubrick in 2001. What Kubrick accomplished in 1969, it blows my mind it's every time I watch that movie. Yeah. Um, and, of course, led to Alien and Star Wars and everything. But it, famously, Nolan wanted real bats for the bat swarm. He was like, I don't, I, I just, can we get some real bats in here? And every animal handler was like, listen, they're not going to cooperate. And they might bite people. So he had to like concede to doing CGI bats. Which still came off in my rewatch of Batman Begins. And it was it DVD great. quality. Looked really good. Yeah. So, looks great. Uh, yeah. His, yeah, going, you talk about DVD. Going back to even his movies from the mid 2000s. They look crystal clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, uh, we talk about his meticulousness. Visually, an auto, audio is fucking perfect. Well, let me backtrack on that. But we'll, and we'll get to that. But he really does like make, create the experience for you. And we, we'll talk about his audio problems sometimes, but it's video. Mm. His movies are always a pleasure to look at. They are. They're very beautiful. I, and they distinctly look like his him. They do. They do. And I, I was going through thinking of, you know, after thinking about the criticisms against him, I was like, well, what are his pros? And, you know, he lands great actors. And I looked up, he's worked with the same casting director since Memento. That is really impressive. So, yeah. Yeah. Actually, could have been Insomnia. I may have that wrong. But I'm pretty sure it was saying from Memento. So, uh, yeah, his sets are always very impressive. The fact that he shoots on film is yeah, um, yeah. also adds a richness. I almost forgot about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the practical effects you already talked about. And then, yeah, he has like a, there's a grandeur to his movies that, yeah. um, that I feel, I feel very like enveloped 
by. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, the thing I think he's become most known for is his obsession with time. Yeah. And it's very real. The book I've been reading about him, I'm not done. I wish I had finished it so I had more to share. He knows it. He is obsessed with time. He thinks time is fascinating. But I don't know that he consciously works it into movies. I think that it just kind of happens organically. And that natural intention is, I think, makes his movies more fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, time, which I do think that he works with great editors who are able to, for the most part, make sense of the way he plays with time. And I see that even, I mean, I think following his very first movie, he did pretty much everything for that. I think he edited it himself too. And I'm, I already watching that saw, I saw glimmers of what was to come. Like he definitely has an idea of how he wants his films edited and the, and it, it really works on me most of the time. So well, that's a great transition. Let's just dive in. So you did watch Following. Yeah. Was it, did you watch it on the Criterion channel? I did. I yeah. did. Um, I liked it more than I thought I was going yeah. to, but um, it it feels like a, a first time director's film, but it's, you know, I applaud him for it. I think yeah. it's. Um, uh, it's only an hour long. Yeah. Black and white. Which works really well for what he was doing. Mm-hmm. You know. It's really crazy how the choice to do black and white, you know, if it's the right movie, it works very well. Mm -hmm. And there's not a discernible reason for it. Um, But you're right. His style already coming out that early. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a character named Cobb giving an early homage to Inception. But the going back and forth in time, it's already happening in this first movie. And these people are kind of in the grand scheme of the world are inconsequential but their little story in this movie you're just you're completely hooked he does he did hook me uh, um in that conversation that are the lead the, i think he's just referred to as the protagonist maybe in the credits i i don't uh, i think you're thinking of tenant but oh, keep going that's right gonna... thank you but i do think that it is like an unnamed lead in following or he's got some kind of ambiguous name either way the lead in following talking to the detective i felt like and and then those opening shots of him walking amongst all the people in the city um i uh i was really gripped by it i um and i was just right there in the action this will probably come up as we go through more and more of his films i always think for the most part they start out really strong and i just think he has a i think he struggles like tying things up quickly like it's just uh i mean things drag out a little bit fair uh so he loses me there we go he loses me uh towards the latter part of his films he doesn't lose me but i i can see why you would say that but following is like this really fascinating first effort if you've watched most of his filmography before you see it i saw following for the first time earlier this year um prior to oppenheimer uh, so most of his filmography I <laughs> saw before I saw following. There's a Batman sticker in the door, which is purposeful. Uh, he said, he I, the book I'm reading, he said he did already like Batman. He was interested in Batman from a psychological standpoint, yeah. which I think has been a popular thing to do to Batman in recent years. Yeah, but that 
that's really cool to learn that. And I think that reads in his Dark Knight trilogy that he cares uh, and he's been thinking about that character for so long. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you are at all interested in Nolan's filmography, I definitely recommend watching following. Like I said, it's an hour. It's very short. Um, I'm looking right now. Oh, 83 percent Rotten Tomatoes. Not nominated for any Oscars. Yeah. So uh, that that little bit of uh, juice got him a little bit more money, not much, so he could make Memento. Now, I said the first movie I saw was Batman Begins, but I remember the chatter around Memento. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would go to so many people's houses when I was younger, around that early 2000s, and they would have the Memento special edition on their DVD shelf. And they would tell me, it's a movie that moves backwards. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Memento bringing the brothers together. Jonathan and Christopher worked on the screenplay together for this. And um, one other quick thing I just wanted to note, starting with following, that Christopher Nolan's wife, Emma Thomas, has been a producer on every one of his films. So oh, yeah. uh, they have a great creative partnership, which I didn't know about until I started um preparing for this podcast but memento is i really look at it almost on like it's a a class all its own from separate from the rest of the nolan filmography uh the Mm well-known nolan films um and there was a quote i found that said he feels like an indie filmmaker with a you know with a major blockbuster budget And um and we've talked about Memento in our we did indie, episode three indie episode um and I just yeah I think that movie w- was it took a chance on can the audience follow this movie running backwards without getting frustrated um and uh, I think it really paid off and um, a lot of that in my recent rewatch. I just credit Guy Pierce. What a great, He's what really a good. great yeah. charismatic lead. Him and Joe Pantliano just their 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 interactions are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe charismatic is the wrong word. He's like feral, and I like that about him. Um, and his he has some of the best voiceover acting of anyone yeah. I've no, ever heard. It's so natural, and it's it yeah. really just like it just pulls you in immediately. Uh, Carrie Ann Moss. I just adore her in Memento, and I mean I across think she's the board. Better than that than, yeah. matri- than Matrix. Yeah, I almost said Matrix. What am I doing? <laughs> Mattresses. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, Carrie. I just um, if you haven't seen Memento, just do it. You won't regret it. It's uh, I I think it's it's really slick. It's gritty. It's uh, it's sexy. It's fun. Um, it's very it's, gritty. Yeah. Um, I'm amazed at how well it still works. And I, I think it benefits from long periods of time between rewatches. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I always remember it's like, oh, it's really good. It's really smart. And I remember how it how it works. But when you – if you give it some time and then you watch it again, like, you remember how it works. But when you watch it work, you're like, this is so perfectly constructed. Yeah. Took the words out of my mouth. I agree. 
it 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 works so much better than I remember every time I watch it. But you, I, I see why you say it's like in a class of its own because it's so. It okay. It's, it's the obsession with time comes in. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's his. You know, his theme is there, but the score sounds different, right? There's opening credits, which he doesn't do moving forward. The graphics, like the font, the words are in. All of that does feels like somebody else did it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he was ready to do something unique yet. I think he was like, this is my chance to get my name out there. So I have to appeal to with something familiar. But you're right. Like the way the shots look, um, all those little details are not quite there yet. So it feels a little different, but the time thing stands out. Who else would have thought of that? Time thing stands out, and I think we're also seeing the the beginnings of him using tragedy, like romantic tragedy, uh, um, in his stories. Uh, I, does that make sense? What I'm saying, like, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, he so this ill-fated kind of love that kind of comes up in a few of his films. I see, you know, which is confusing because he's given these flashbacks mm-hmm. that you find out are associated with with him, mm-hmm. but he's not telling the story that's him. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. But the success of Memento gave him a big deal with Warner brothers to make insomnia, which I'm shocked when I read that that movie was a commercial and critical success is what I read on Wikipedia. I don't ever remember hearing anything about that movie until the last like couple years, but well, as perfect as that transition is, let me just say real quickly, memento 93% raw tomatoes. It was a huge yes. movie on the um, festival circuit, the movie festival circuit. Got a lot of attention. It's the reason we know about this man now. Um, and then it was nominated for two Oscars. Best original screenplay. Yeah, and best film, film editing. With film editing was exquisite. Yes. Uh, for, for such a complicated concept. And good on the Oscars for recognizing that. That's Absolutely. very cool. That's very cool. Very small time. studio. Give him some love. Um, so I was familiar with Insomnia. I remember seeing commercials and hearing people talk about it. Robin Williams playing a villain. And he's acting with Al Pacino. I mean, it was a very intriguing situation that took me many years to finally finally watch. I remember I had friends whose parents, like, they had the DVD. Um, and I was always intrigued, mostly because of the Robin Williams aspect. But uh, I didn't find out until much later that it was a remake of a Scandinavian film. Starring the wonderful Stellan Skarsgård, who I'm a huge fan of. I did not know that about the Scandinavian part, but I do love him. So, um, I what in watching Insomnia, I think the biggest standout for me is how we're starting to see now that Christopher Nolan is so smart about his locations Absolutely. and using them, using them as a great. Uh, plot device or in servicing the plot um and uh or as almost sometimes like a character all their own you and with insomnia being set in summer in alaska where the sun is up almost 24 hours really it it 
really plays well with uh, the uh, just this maddening kind of like cat and mouse uh, scenario that's happening as Al Pacino, you know, keeps getting kind of like outwitted by Robin Williams' character, and and he's sort of as we're seeing Al Pacino sort of slipping more and more into this sort of crazed state of being, yeah. which he plays so well. Cat and mouse is, I think, definitely a term I used when I reviewed this on Letterbox. But you know, I've seen people say they feel like Pacino's checked out here, and I don't. I think he is. I don't think Pacino's ever been checked out in a movie. I think he takes yeah. this craft very seriously, and. Can you imagine being Nolan? You made a name with yourself for yourself with this indie movie, and now you have to work with three Oscar winners, one of which is like probably one of the five greatest actors of all time. It's good. I mean, it, it's it's you know, a good movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I I don't want to give it like a crazy rating, but it's so well done. You can't ignore what's good about it. And Pacino's good in it. Robin Williams is good at Hillary Swank is she's really she is good. really good she is really good in it um she's another person who I think because of the accolades and success that she's received people come after her a lot and say she's not as good as she is but oh, God. Um, she's she's fucking awesome yeah yeah um yeah somebody is really good and what I always loved and about the movie is you know, the way he does these small things. I go in great detail about this uh, on Letterboxd, but the little tiny details he puts in that makes you as the viewer also feel like you're sleep-deprived. It's so smart. Yeah, yeah. It's the way he edits, edits things, the way scenes move. I feel myself, like, physically, like, kind of... Um, lethargic totally yes and that's clearly purposeful yes absolutely i i this was my second time watching it and that was a big takeaway i had watched was that i was like oh my gosh i'm feeling just like the al pacino character is in this with you know i feel like i haven't slept in days and um i think that is a very that shows someone who's got a great vision and very skilled at what they're they're that's a great director someone that has an overall vision for what they want what they want their audience to feel watching the movie and he got a performance out of al pacino that he wanted he used effects properly to to get us there and he made robin williams like just gross and 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 I can't imagine how hard that would be. I mean, no, I mean, credit to Robin Williams, who was a very talented man. And, and you've seen One Hour Photo, or have, have you? I actually have never oh, seen okay. that movie. Okay, you have to. Yeah, it's a it's a stylish movie, but uh, it's it is yeah. If you've seen Robin Williams now as this as this villain in Insomnia, I would love to get your thoughts on him in One Hour Photo. It's on my list. Um, I've got one of the apps that tells you when it's streaming somewhere. I think I have the DVD, so you can have it. Oh, you do? I, no, yeah, I, I can finally borrow. give you something. Yeah, because I've let you borrow so many movies. <laughs> uh, but no, I think Pacino's really great, and uh, I, I totally forgot on my rewatch that uh, Mira T- Moira T- Tierney was in <gasps> yes, it, and I just I God, love, I love her. her so much. I like, love her. From ER to Liar Liar, she's the best. Mm. Um, no, I mean, it's like, it's not mind-blowing, but it's like a super well-made film that you understand why that movie got him the clout to make the biggest movies in the world. 
which led him to one of the most famous trilogies of all time. And that is such a big conversation. I think we need a break. And we're back. Uh, before we get into the Dark Knight trilogy, I do want to say Insomnia, 92% Rotten Tomatoes, which was higher than I would have thought. Yeah. Uh, no Oscar noms. But that does bring us to the Dark Knight trilogy. I realize there were a couple movies in between the Batman movies, but let's just knock this out as the trilogy that it is. I, I would feel silly if we broke it up as they came out. Um, obviously, I did an entire Batman episode where I spoke heavily about the the Dark Knight trilogy. Now, I I did that as a Batman fan, um, discussing these movies at Batman movies. So I definitely have a different perspective to give as Nolan movies, but I've talked a lot about these movies, so please go ahead. Okay. Well, starting off with Batman Begins, I just recently rewatched it in preparation for this and really came away from it with... Uh, a newfound like appreciation and I I had never really I think given credit to how well Christopher Nolan is able to embed that trauma that really drives Bruce Wayne throughout the trilogy and um and in showing just like how messed up it is that young Bruce Wayne sees his parents die in front of him that really is like up there as one of the worst things that could happen to a child and I've I feel like the stakes are all like everything about that is played out uh in a very grounded and real way and credit to Christian Bale's performance in showing how he is weighed down by this um as you know he he becomes a young man um, uh, and so the Batman Begins, I think, um, is a really, is a, we talk about how maybe Christopher Nolan is weak with his characters, but I really think with the Bruce Wayne characters, super strong. He's got a really good point of view there. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, Burton didn't really get into it. And we talked about, um, you and I have talked about, well, with James, about Batman Forever and how they, they got into the psychology of, of Batman a little bit and with Val Kilmer. But you're right. They they didn't really get into it um, in, a, in a deeper way, make Bruce Wayne really the, the center um, until Batman Begins. I remember seeing it in theater and thinking it was really interesting. It, I, it was a whole new spin. We were getting away from the previous era. Um, wasn't super familiar with Christian Bale. I remember everybody said he's the guy from American Psycho and I think Velvet Goldmine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, then child actor from like sure. Empire of the Sun. And yeah. Didn't realize I that was I'd seen Empire of the Sun. It's been so long, I barely remember it, but um I didn't even realize he was British. Mm-hmm. Most people didn't. And Ben Affleck has famously told a story about being in England after being cast as Batman and running into him and going, I didn't even know you were English. <laughs> um Really great casting choices all around. I mean, I not real crazy about Katie Holmes, but she's fine. Uh, you know, I love Liam Neeson and uh, mm-hmm. Gary Oldman playing Commissioner Gordon. I would have never thought of, and it just it works so well. Um, I think this is the first movie where Nolan's style comes in. 
the the no opening credits showing the title of the movie in just bold white letters at the end uh, before the ending credits go. The lighting choices, yeah. the color palettes, um, uh, working with Hans Zimmer for the yes. first time. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. I did this really was like, he's like, I figured out who I want to be as a filmmaker. And, um, and you know, giving this was sort of uh, – Credit to Sam Raimi and reinvigorating like the uh, superhero film in the early 2000s with what he did with the Spider-Man franchise. I think that Christopher Nolan probably used some of that momentum and but gave it his own take and um, his own style to it. Uh, but it, I think it was really showing that like comic book films can be different. Um, and kind of grounded and, in reality. And grounded in reality can play out feeling at times like an, there are moments when we're learning more about Ra's al Ghul and um, we're up there in the Himalayans or wherever they may be. And it's feeling like we're getting these touches of like epics, uh, like adventure epics, historical epics. Then we're in Gotham and it's feeling like gritty crime thrillers and um, it all is very seamlessly blended, I think, in Batman Begins. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I. Um, it's the first movie to really go, how did this guy get this way? Which, it's kind of crazy it took this long. And he, he piecemealed it from uh, very famous graphic novels and kind of formed it its own. But I just thought it was such, you know, the scene where him and um, Ra's al Ghul are sword fighting on the ice is yeah. one of my absolutely favorite scenes in the entire trilogy. It's... Mm -hmm. uh, and might be my favorite Zimmer score of the three Batman movies. I know the Dark Knight one is the most famous, but uh, there's something very beautiful about the th the the score in, in Batman Begins. There is um, a pure sentimentality to Batman Begins that I think sets it apart from the the three movies. So yeah, it made more money than I thought too. I mean, it it, it more than doubled its its. Uh, budget mm. which i was a little surprised about because i remember most people like didn't really go see it um and it was like later on when people were rewatching dvds and everybody was hyped because of the joker card at the end and you're, you're waiting for that of course he made everybody pause but uh yeah batman begins uh 85 rotten tomatoes and it was nominated for cinematography which i agree i mean yeah i think we're used to nolan's visual style now but when it came out it was just like i nobody look nobody's movies look like this no they didn't and um one thing that i definitely uh that stands out to me in watching batman begins was the way cinematography was employed so very very deserving nomination and then of course the next one in the <laughs> series is the movie that that made him as famous as he is yeah. uh, the dark knight and i again on the Batman episode, I talked about the hype around this. So, and, and it pulling from heat and our reactions when the trailers came out. So Chelsea, please. I mean, I can't really add, I think a whole lot more to the conversation around the dark Knight that as a, people haven't already heard it, it, it just, I, it really, it was just this like complete total all consuming blockbuster that, uh, I find to be Highly rewatchable, thoroughly rewatchable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so much, you know, due in part to Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. Uh, 
I think that's going to be a performance that will stand the test of time. And um, I think he did it without dipping into camp or schlocky kind of stick shtick of the Joker. I think he he gave it his own fresh perspective and made it this very demented and taunting and um, tragic kind of character. So, uh, and then obviously his Heath Ledger's death before the release of the movie just added this whole other element to everything that I think made us all appreciate his performance that much more. Absolutely. Uh, Kind of reminiscent of what you were saying about your first viewing. I was in Florida. I was on vacation and got my tickets a couple days before. I was like, I'm not missing this, this movie. I've been waiting for forever for it. Um, all the through the rewatches of Batman Begins and seeing the Joker card at the end. And, uh, yep. Could have gotten there a little sooner. We weren't front row, but it was, it was pretty close to the screen and to the side. So I too left with a crick in my neck. And, uh, you know, as soon as I got back home, I think I ran right back out a week later and watched it again. There's nothing like it. I mean, and, and kind of what you were saying with Sam Raimi movies, dark Knight came out the same year as Iron Man which sent us on this dual course of what started to be as very cool. And is just, I'm just <laughs> no more superhero movies, yeah. please. Yeah. I I'm, I'm actually very pleased to see that they've all kind of suffered this year. Like, mm-hmm. can we, it's, 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 it's going the way of the Western, you know, from the seventies, uh, you know, the Westerns were huge in the forties, fifties, sixties. And then the seventies, it was like enough. Mm-hmm. Um, Clint Eastwood try to keep it going there for a little bit. <laughs> Uh, Dark Knight um, nominated for several Oscars. Of course, Heath Ledger won posthumously. Um, won for sound editing, but it was up for cinematography, film editing, art direction, makeup, sound mixing, visual effects. 94% Rotten Tomatoes. We don't need to say anything else that we yeah. haven't already said. Um, and then takes a break. Comes out with uh, the final chapter. Kind of some bold moves. I, I'm curious if his how much he had planned before Heath died. Um, Picking Bane as a villain, if you're a comic book fan, that was very bold. I, I was excited when I heard it. And I was excited they cast Tom Hardy because, as we'll talk about, when I saw Inception, Tom Hardy was the person that I was like, who is that? I had like, the same feeling, yeah, when I saw Inception. Absolutely drawn to the guy. Um, I realize that The Dark Knight Rises is very flawed and silly, but it's just too goddamn entertaining to <laughs> to ignore. I, it's... Uh, I love Tom Hardy's Bane. I know it's a joke, and I get why it's a joke. While simultaneously, absolutely loving it. I mean, fully committed to it, and um, love that about it. Um, that airplane sequence that starts off the movie among is, Nolan's best scenes. Yes, absolutely. Do uh, the Dark Knight Rises is my least favorite of the of the trilogy but i mean there's (laughs) yeah i'm not going out on a limb or anything by saying that but uh that's not to say there aren't some incredible sequences um and things to love about it um i uh i've definitely come around on my half a hate i used to be a huge Anne hathaway hater oh really i think that was really mean of me and I think I just jumped on the bandwagon when everyone was kind of like over her and I've really come around on a lot of her performances I mean I'll talk about it when we get to Interstellar but I I will say I don't really I I I find her to be kind of 
obnoxious as Catwoman. So really, uh, I that, think she's so good. Yeah, she's just. I think she's a little obnoxious uh, in this in this role, but she looks great. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, that's that's probably one of my my biggest gripes with it. I, I every time I every time I watch Dark Knight Rises, it's almost like you look at her performance and go, I feel like you think you're in like a campy Batman movie, but you're not. But it somehow is working really well, mm. so I'm just gonna go with it. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, um, it's still crazy entertaining. I, I and it's still just the spe- again the spectacle of it, and it looks beautiful. I like all a yeah. lot all of his films. Too. You know, I have the 4K trilogy, and it, that movie looks unreal. Uh, on my TV still. And like there's certain shots you see the aspect ratio change because they're giving you the IMAX perspective on your TV. So like the first fight with Bane, the airplane scene, you know, uh, some of the big stuff at the end, the screen fully stretches and it's just, it's really great. So uh, 87% Rotten Tomatoes. James and I laughed about that's entirely too high. Mm-hmm. Uh, no Oscar mm-hmm. nominations. It's kind of surprising, but uh, uh, I get it. Um so he makes he starts kind of makes a name for himself with Batman Begins, and then he does the Prestige. You were talking about writing his own screenplays with you know his brother Jonathan writes. I mean, Memento was mostly Jonathan, mm-hmm. so. and then he went on to make Westworld series for HBO and everything. I think he's but, done some yeah. small time movies too, but uh, the Prestige is based off a book, and we We've covered it. We did yeah. a whole episode yeah. on it. It's. Uh, Still a fascinating movie, but what I think is so interesting, respective to the topic that we're talking about, is there's people that are like tepid on Nolan, but they love, love that the one. prestige. Like that's probably Lacey's favorite. Well, I take that back. She's come around on Interstellar. She really likes it. Uh, but she really liked the prestige. Um, and what's not to like? Yeah. I mean, it's uh it's very stressful. I'm sure I talked about it. I don't really remember everything I said in the episode we did about it, but I think it it was one of the first movies I remember kind of bringing me into a state of like feeling like, feeling like I was in a panic attack because the sabotage was just too much for me at the time. But I guess once I let that wash over me and I understood my second viewing and subsequent viewings, I've really enjoyed. But um, yeah, it's – I I – I could see why the prestige appeals to people who say they don't always like Christopher Nolan movies just because it's um, slightly more smaller scale, maybe a little bit more of an intimate, uh, intimate uh, view on uh, this. I mean, I, I sort of this uh, character study of these two men are just who are just driven mad by vengeance in a way, but, and then you've got this Tesla, David Bowie is Tesla <laughs> looming in the background. Yeah. I mean, I think we said on our episode that we did the twinning episode, I, I've realized there's just questions I'm never going to have answered. Um, there's, I've, I've still have a few whys. Why is this happening? Why did this happen this way? That you just kind of have to go with, mm-hmm. uh, but the movie's too good for me to, you know, obsess over that. Ironically, a movie about obsession. Um, I hope Hugh Jackman works with Nolan again because yeah. I love Hugh Jackman. I think he's criminally underrated. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't mind if Scarlett Johansson worked with him again. Um, but, uh, yeah, Prestige's great. Um, totally. 77% of Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is too low. 
Like we could swap that in the Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, yeah. I I would feel good about that. And uh, nominated for two Oscars, which were uh, cinematography, again, mm-hmm. yeah, and then art direction, which absolutely, the set designs and everything were great. And I will point out, I think it is Michael Caine at his best in any of the um, in any of his work with uh, his films with Christopher Nolan. I'm inclined to agree with you. Yeah. Um, so that brings us to in between the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises. You know, the Dark Knight ends. We're all like, that movie was blew the world's mind, collective mind, and we're like, we're ready for the next Batman movie. But he's like, no, no, I got this other movie to do next. And we're like, come on, man, can we just get the last Batman movie out? We're all ready for it. And then it came out, and we were like, holy shit! And of course, I'm talking about Inception. Mm-hmm. Um, previously, based on our first episode of the podcast, what used to be in my top five favorite movies. I still love it. Pushed it out for heat. Um, because he just, every time I watched it, I just loved it more and more. Um, I still really like Inception. I was hoping to get a rewatch in before we did this. Uh, ran out of time, but I've seen it enough. Uh, it has been a while since I've seen it. But it, it's one of those movies that I'm always like, do I love this movie as much as I think? And then I watch it again, I'm like, I still love it. I remember I saw it in theaters. And it was one of those movies that the rest of the week, I would just think randomly throughout the week. Just like, wow, that was really good. I had so much fun at that movie. I think that's what he wanted you to do. I think Christopher Nolan wanted you to just keep thinking about that movie. Um, uh, It's what frustrates me about Inception is I feel it uh, tries to add a few too many layers to the story that ends up just kind of confusing me and uh, takes me out of the progression of the story um and there's a lot of exposition there's a lot of characters that have to keep explaining to you what's happening um so that I the first time I watched it I'm not going to nitpick it and say that I picked up on that I didn't I was just in the theater completely dazzled by it uh it it just effects that we've never seen before on screen I think that most people probably when they think of Inception will think of the trailer and the use of that sound and seeing some of those images of when Elliot Page and Leonardo DiCaprio are walking through the city and we're seeing uh, the character Ariadne like move the city peel up on itself. And uh, that's a pretty iconic image. I I don't know if you would agree, but um my funny theater going experience seeing Inception. I went with my cousin Tori and my mom. And uh, at one point, I think Tori was sitting in the middle. My mom leans over to Tori and says, I'm having a panic attack. So I'm going to go, but I, I will see it. you at the end of the movie. I totally get <laughs> and, it. And uh, I don't remember which part in Inception we lost my mom but uh she she had to bail so um that uh and I don't think she'll probably ever give that movie another shot but um I I again with Inception I think they're in the beginning it's starting off and I'm just so with it and I'm loving these characters being introduced it's like we talked about Tom Hardy as he's on screen you're like who is this beautiful specimen with this gorgeous mouth of his? Well, he had all the best lines, great, too. Yeah. And, um, but uh, 
I just find I'm I'm not at all into the mall cob like their marriage that the children the clip of the kids playing where you never see their faces that's like overused I just it just really I just kind of tune all that out and I sort of wish I just find it just kind of muddies the movie I yeah that's that's where I come down I guess you can you can people can hate me for that but um I don't think anybody is I think it's more popular to say this movie's not not as good as people think it is uh look I still love the movie because it's just I'd never seen anything like that before. I don't. I can't think of a movie like that. It was such a neat idea. I mean, it's like Christopher Nolan. He can't do anything normal, right? He's like, I'm gonna make a heist movie. Well, this is his heist movie, and it's you're in your dreams. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the mall stuff. If it doesn't work for you, that's fine. I just kind of, I, I don't think about it one way or the other. I just go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, the the backstory of Cobb, and I've heard people do complain about the. Um, expository way of telling things. If it doesn't work for you and it doesn't work for somebody else, that's fine. I'm not going to tell anybody they're wrong about that. I don't mind it because it's just like the Nolans came up with this neat idea. Well, tell me about your idea. Tell me all about it. That's what you're doing. You're explaining this idea to me. Could they have written it in a way where we can infer it from context? Maybe. I don't know. But I, I kind of liked that they were like, here's how this crazy dream world works mm-hmm. and I'm, I don't know I was just always into it on top of um, I, I like the Leo performance because he's just this you know he'd become this larger than life person over the years and he's kind of subdued in this movie he is yeah um, Ken Watanabe is fucking awesome in this movie mm-hmm. um, you know uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is exactly what he needs to be and Tom Hardy just bursts onto the scene and I I mean, there were times I wanted to watch the movie because I was just like, I want to see this guy again. Just hit, I totally agree. I, it made me like, and he hit the way he's styled and everything. He kind of seems like he stepped out of a Bond movie or something. But um, I love when he says to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he's like, your condescension is always appreciated. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, man, that's such good. Yeah. But we we can't talk about Inception without talking about Zimmer's score, which I understand why he didn't win that year at the Oscars because he lost to Trent Reznor for the uh, mm, Social same. Network. What an incredible score. And I, Nolan's relationship with Zimmer, Zimmer does such a good job of pulling emotion out of you when you wouldn't think that you would in these movies. And his his piece, Time, at the end of the movie, I mean, I get emotional when I hear that, that music play. And I don't understand why. And it's just the power of this. It's all of it. It's the concoction of the imagery and the music and, and everything. Um, what a great pairing those two are. Totally, totally. So, um, man, Inception. I, I, I'm probably going to rewatch it this weekend. I, I, I haven't watched it in a while, but I still love it. Uh, 87% Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, it won for cinematography. Mm-hmm. It won for sound mixing. It won for sound editing. Uh, it won for visual effects. It was up for best picture, best screenplay. Best score, as I said, and best art direction. All right. Uh, so he finishes the Dark Knight trilogy, and then we hear he's doing this sci-fi movie. And uh, I remember I saw Interstellar and IMAX, and I walked out going, I want to see that again immediately. And I know it's an extremely popular movie now, especially in like Letterboxd and stuff. And it was certainly popular when it came out, and he made a lot of money, but I just remember being on that wagon like, 
early saying this is I don't care if somebody gets mad at me for saying it. I think it's one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever. If you don't like it, get your own podcast. I don't care. I, I love Interstellar so much. Uh, as we're talking about his movies, I'm like, wow, I have such vivid memories of going to the theater and what my theater going experience was for a lot of these. And Interstellar is one of those. Um, just it feeling like an event can't miss it gotta go um I think that with Interstellar there are moments there are sequences in that movie that are going to stay with me the rest of my life um the water planet in particular um still I still makes me grip my seat yeah it's it it's so well paced and suspenseful and um the effect of that wave just i mean it's like something out of a nightmare um i th- the quietness of and this somber you know somber feeling we have of these explorers uh, these astronauts out on the ship dealing with this loss of time as they're getting sucked in the wormhole. It's all very, um, it's, it's just super compelling. And, um, I, I think that in the first 30, maybe hour, 30 minutes to an hour of interstellar, it really plays out like a great Steven Spielberg movie. We're getting the dynamics of a, of a family and this, sort of greater uh, event that surrounds them as we're learning Matthew McConaughey is, is going to get pulled into this um, this space exploration project to save the Earth. But um, so I I think Christopher Nolan was really kind of stretching himself there and and that kind of work with the the family and the pulling at the heartstrings. That is an example of when it really did work for me and it felt um, earned and um, – uh, you know, it, it, it just, uh, was, it, it was very, uh, heartwarming to me to see the relationship that Matthew McConaughey's character had with his children. And what, again, and this is a common issue for me that I fall asleep a lot watching movies regardless of their quality, but I do find after my initial viewing of Interstellar in the theater, which I did not fall asleep for, all my other viewings of it, I always fall asleep after the Matt Damon sequence. And I just, um, <laughs> I don't know what that exactly means other than it just, uh, maybe it's just it just kind of starts to lose me at that point. I don't know if it could have been wrapped up a little more uh, succinctly at that point, but then I think it would take away from this beautiful message of him reaching his daughter through other dimensions and everything. So, so it's funny you bring up Spielberg. So, you know, I actually have the book written by Kip Thorne about the making of the movie. I haven't finished the whole thing, but for those that don't know, so um, movie producer named uh, Linda I, oh, I'm going to mispronounce her name. It's O-B-S-T, Obst, I don't know. And Kip Thorne, who is a physicist who's won every science award he can win, including the Nobel Prize. They worked together in the movie Contact, and they said, hey, what if we wrote a movie that was as scientifically plausible as as, as could be? And so they, they wrote, they got with Jonathan Nolan, mm-hmm. 
and wrote their early script. And Spielberg was attached. Spielberg was attached to make Interstellar for years. And they couldn't get the timing right, and he finally fell off. So they asked Jonathan, well, hey, your brother's this crazy uh, yeah. famous director now. Do you think he'd want to make this movie? And Kip Thorne stuck around the whole time. And every time Nolan, he said Nolan would call me all the time and be like, I got this idea. Can I do this? And he would tell him, no, that's not scientifically possible, but you can do this. So there was a Nobel Prize winning physicist on call mm-hmm. for the entire making of Interstellar. So anybody that's like, this movie's absurd. Well, it's not as absurd as you think it is. Um, you're right. They You talk about the character development and the emotion being a common complaint with, with Nolan. He completely fixes it in Interstellar. Mm-hmm. I don't have kids, but anybody who's got kids says the scene where McConaughey's watching oh. the videos just crushes you. It does. And for me personally, I've seen the movie a million times. I saw it in IMAX twice when there's initial run. I've watched it so many times on home disc. I saw it in 70 millimeter at the Hollywood theater. Every time Ellen Burstyn says, because my dad promised me, I'm sitting there going, oh, give it together. God, oh, oh, oh man, here comes the waterworks every time. And that, this again, a Zimmer score pulling so much emotion out of you. It's breathtaking to look at. I, I, I don't care who you are. If you watch that movie and you don't get some kind of enjoyment out of it, I don't know what's wrong with you. Yeah, you got to at least get some kind of enjoyment as you put it yeah so interstellar 73 percent broad tomatoes that's um, excruciatingly low yeah, in my opinion yeah uh it did win an oscar for best visual effects it was up for screenplay sound mixing and sound editing and production design would have liked to have seen production design maybe win there i, I don't know what won in its place but Pretty interesting, like all the the ship, the spaceships and stuff looked kind of realistic. That TARS. uh, Yeah, the robots are great, man. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do want to say, so you brought up Matt Damon. I love Matt. Like, he's one of my favorites. I I remember him being cast, but it was still a surprise when when the first time I saw it, he was in there. But what is he doing, like, from one scene to the next? Like, they find him, and he's like normal Matt Damon. Like, yep, I'm the Matt Damon you know and love. And then as he's walking with... McConaughey, he sounds like a Shakespeare villain or something. He's like, "Do you see your children, Coop?" Do you, I'm like, "Why are you talking like that? What you weren't talking like that on the <laughs> ship? You were just Matt Damon, and now what is this thing you're doing?" It just gets me every time. I love that movie, but I'm just like, "Matt, what the fuck are you doing, man?" Um, and that brings us to what could be considered. Uh, Nolan's grand achievement in yes. Dunkirk. And so here's what I'm going to say about Dunkirk. I watched it last night, just under the gun. I've only seen it twice prior to that, both in 70 millimeter at Hollywood. I, I went in a Blu-ray and this is my first time breaking it out. My father's a historian. You've heard him on the show. And somehow I was not super familiar with the Dunkirk evacuation. So this was a cool experience for me. The first time I saw the movie, I said, this is an incredibly well-made movie. But of all the Nolan movies, I don't know if this is one I'm going to keep running back to. And it was up for all these Oscars. It was his first Oscar nomination for director, which I was like, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And it wasn't until, I think I've said this on the show before, Tarantino did Rewatchables. He chose Dunkirk and everything they talked about. Coincidentally, it came back to the Hollywood when that episode dropped. And I went back and saw it. I was like, holy shit, I see everything you're talking about. This movie's amazing. And I saw it last night and was just, it gets better every time I watch it. 
Yeah. Off mic, I said it comes very close to being, I think, considered a perfect movie. It It is, it just uh, clips along so well. It's, it's straightforward. It's his most straightforward movie. Yes. Um, it plays with time again in these three storylines that converge on each other at the, at the climax of the film. But it's just... It 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 is so edge of your seat thrilling. It's uh, heartbreaking at times. I mean, the the smaller story that they focus on with Mark Rylance and his son, and um, the the friend that um, ends up Barry meeting Keoghan. His, Barry Keoghan, who his name is George. George, who is who ends up dying after an altercation with the Killian Murphy character. It's, I mean, that, when I think about Dunkirk, I think about the tragedy of that, that story. And I think about the compassion that Mark Rylance shows Killian Murphy and that he and his, that Mark Rylance's son show him. And when he asks if, if George yes. is going to make it, yes. And they're just like, we can't put this on his conscience after everything else he's been through. And it's, I think it is just one of the most beautiful moments in a Christopher Nolan movie, actually, I'm gonna, I I will say. I, so, well, it's uh, funny you say that because the first thing I, I think came out of my mouth after the rewatch last night was, I forgot how moving this movie is. Moving, yeah. Uh, in every regard. Um, I, I'm not English. I have no connection to this, mm-hmm. this event. But yeah, when Kenneth Branagh is like, he's like, what do you see? And he says, home. And the music swells. Because the music is, so here's the thing I realized last night. This movie is a ride. It's like an amusement park ride. And you just go for the ride. It's not telling you the story about Dunkirk. That's not what this is. It's It's not a historical movie. This is an experience. This is you. Nolan's like you're not gonna watch the events that took place. I'm putting you on this fucking beach, and you it you feel that way absolutely when you're in the plane when you're in the plane yes. with Tom Hardy and um I I should have pulled that actor's name but uh, I think he's Scottish um yeah. that Collins. Uh, yeah um I love there's there's so much thought and detail that went into the way that we're hearing them on the radio talking to each other and like the voices are kind of warbled, like the way they would sound in their headsets. Um, There is that, that vibration and shake of what they're, whenever we see them from like, yeah, we're completely put in the characters perspectives. um, Right. And uh, it's, it just, it just really, really pays off. And I can't believe it. I felt like I'd been kind of sleeping on how good Dunkirk was until I just rewatched it this last week. And I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. This, I just like you just came away with this really, really uh, intense appreciation. And I I think, I think a lot of people have, I mean, it's sitting on under eight on IMDb, but you know, it's, it's 92% of our tomatoes. And I think a lot of people saw it that one time and said, this is a well-made movie, but I don't care enough. And you got to watch it more than once to understand really what's happening. And to have Zimmer's score just stressing you out mm-hmm. with that dissonant sound. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. And then when the when the boats come up and the music swells to this beautiful... I was choking up. Yeah. I, again, I, you know. But I think what I took away this time 
as a theme that I thought was so fucking smart. The end of the movie, they're reading the famous Churchill speech from the newspaper about persisting and enduring the fight. And while that's happening, Farrier, played by Tom Hardy, is trying to get his landing gear down, and it's not working. He pulls the lever, but he has to keep pumping the lever to get the landing gears down while they're reading this. And I realized that was an imagery for keep pushing. Mm. Don't give up and complete the thing you're trying to do. Then I realized the whole movie was like that. You know, every time the main character, who, by the way, his name is Tommy. I don't think they ever say it in the movie. He's like, I'm going to get off the beach this way. That doesn't work. And he goes, I'm going to get off the beach this way. It doesn't work. While he's watching guys walk into the ocean, you know, to, to die. And he's like, no, I'm going to keep pushing. And that's the theme of the movie is this Churchill speech. And, it, and, you know, and of course, maybe one of the best moments in the movie where the old man played by Christopher Nolan's uncle, John Nolan, plays a blind, most likely World War I veteran, because many World War I veterans became blind. He says, well done. And then Harry Styles says, all we do is survive. That's enough. You, you did what Churchill was saying. You kept enduring. We just need you to endure so yeah. you can keep fighting. And all the imagery is that. Even when Farrier's plane loses gas, and that great moment where he's just silently flying through the air and still finds a way to turn around and shoot down that one last fighter's plane. Uh, the whole thing's about keep fighting. Yeah. It's brilliant. Uh, like I said, 92% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it won film editing, sound editing, sound mixing. Uh, and it was up for best picture, uh, best music, best directing, best cinematography, and production design. It objectively might be his great, his great achievement, truly. Absolutely. All right, Chelsea, I'm so excited because now I get to hear your thoughts on Tenet. Fire away. It, um, <laughs> it was, um, I'm, I'm sorry to say I was really disappointed by Tenet and I wanted to like it. I love Robert Pattinson. I thought he was going to like, just, just his presence alone would win me over. But um, I love Elizabeth Debicki. She's um, awesome. Why isn't but, she in more things? Yeah. I know. A tall girl. An amazing yeah, tall girl. she's shorter than me. It's yeah. insane. 6'4", uh, by the way. <laughs> and such, such a cool concept. I Another iconic trailer. I mean, seeing the shot of the, the ship and the waves running backwards it's all you know it's very i i it's commendable what they pulled off it just didn't it just it just didn't work for me i i spent a lot of the movie just like thinking to maybe you know maybe i'll watch it a second time and i'll like it more because i won't be so hung up on like trying to figure it out and the, figure all the mechanics of it but this is one where like I can forgive in Inception for some of its like superfluous sort of layers upon layers of puzzles and things because but with Tenant I just didn't find that um, there was enough for me to like sink my teeth into with it. It was just all a little too flashy and left me feeling kind of empty and I didn't really care for John David Washington in that role. Amen. I, I thought he was really boring, actually, and had like no 
he had no, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh my gosh. Charisma? Well, lack charisma, but he, chemistry. He had no chemistry with anyone he was on screen with. And, um, and I felt like everyone else was trying to, like, they were giving it their all. And I've seen him do great work in Black Klansman before yeah. but uh that's, his, that's the best he was ever really been. miscast in this movie Chelsea, yeah. you're taking all my thoughts out of my head from the first time i watched this movie um so every time i watch this movie i like it a little more it's such a cool idea i've accepted that i'm never going to fully understand it uh i'm just not but i do understand it a little bit more every single time my number one complaint is that he was not the right casting choice i said it to james when the movie first came out we talked about it uh, I, I look, he is awesome in Black Klansman. I haven't really seen him in anything else. He hasn't been in anything else that's like been well received. I'll be curious to see him in the sci fi movie, mm-hmm. The Creator. Uh, I hope he's not just another Nepo kid that you know, yeah. but he, he just wasn't the right casting choice at all. There's nothing about him that makes me go, Oh, secret agent. I will say, like, he comes across like an athlete, and that helps. The bungee scene is fucking cool. The cheese grater sure. fight is awesome. That's right, because uh, saying when you said athlete, I forgot. I forgot that he was on that show on HBO, um, Ballers. Yeah, I think he played yeah. college sports. Yeah, but uh, just some of his delivery is just bad. Like yeah. when he meets Robert Pattinson for the first time, and they were ordering drinks, and he goes, "I prefer soda water." I'm like, "Why are you talking like that?" <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he has his moments. Uh, it just. I think it was less his fault, more it's just like, you just weren't the right person for this role. Yeah, just to- from the get-go, yeah. Um, and then, like, I don't know, there's a lot of confusion, right? Like, the first scene's in an opera, and somebody says later to him, it's like, do you like opera? It's like, see, now that's meaningful, but I can't figure out why. But I do want to say, I said Elizabeth Debicki, she is awesome. Everything I see her in, she's awesome. And I don't know why she's not one of the biggest movie stars in the she's world. She's very intense, yeah. Um. This might be my favorite Robert Pattinson role. I think that Good Times probably the best acting he's ever done, but all encompassing, he's just so like, I'm just drawn to him in this movie. Totally, I will say that, and his last moments in Tenet are very uh, powerful for me. So, uh, and uh, there is a real you. He's the character I care about the most in the movie. Yeah. Um, Positives, though, like we said, cool idea. There's some really cool scenes. How they pulled off the backwards forward, I I, I have no idea mm-hmm. how they pulled this shit off. Um, first time not working with Hans Zimmer. He's working with Ludwig Goranson, something like that. Yeah. Um, score's really cool. It's different, different um, aesthetic for a Nolan movie. The Freeport stuff, awesome. Mm-hmm. Loved all that. The backwards fighting. It's just some of the things, like the rules don't always line up. They go back to the Oslo airport and things aren't lining up exactly like they did the first time. Um, it's too cool. I've been so intrigued by it. And every time I watch it, I understand it a little more, which is rewarding. It's just, um, that one really got away from him. And I don't know if pr- post-production, right around COVID happening, yeah. fucked things up. I have no idea. But... Uh, um. I don't know. I don't know. I, I appreciate it, but it's just not it's not fully realized. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um so anyway, I, I still enjoy it. Tenet, um 
It was nominated, or actually won for visual effects, and was nominated for production design. 69% Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I don't know, crisp 70. I feel like it could have <laughs> been better, but but anyway, there we go. And so that brings us to the big one that's in theaters right now, and that's Oppenheimer. Um, this has been hyped up forever. Um, oh, I think about all the texts I would get from you last year being like, and this person now is signed oh, up. This we, person. We joked about believe? it on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, you saw it more. So I saw it twice. I saw it on IMAX, and then I saw it in 70 millimeter. And you saw it more recently than I did. We watched the kiddo for you. Yeah, so, thank you. So it's fresher on your mind. Go ahead and give me your thoughts. Um, the word to summarize my experience was I was inspired. I walked away from the movie just feeling very inspired by it. I think inspired just by the movie going experience and seeing a movie shot on film in a 70 millimeter format. It was, I was really just like, I, I was just soaking it all in. Like I had a beer. I felt really just like, I, I just felt like I was kind of back in my element, you know, cuddled up to Micah. I was just, uh, and from the very get go, like the movie, I love like that kind of like snap, characters like in sort of snappy dialogue like that like in a way this kind of seemed like his most like sort Aaron Sorkin kind of a lot of movie. people compared it to social network and yeah. um and I was I was I was really digging that and um I I just thought that there the, the use of science and put making science artful and putting it on screen in that way was just it's like a kind of a perfect compliment to what he did with interstellar um uh and i just i'm such a sucker for like actors like i just loved seeing all these familiar faces popping up and doing great work and um I mean, from from the lead with with Killian Murphy, who is I just adore in almost everything he does. Um, but he really doesn't even have like the flashiest performance, I would say, of the movie. No, no. But um, Emily Blunt, I think, does has a scene towards the end of the film that just completely won me over to her performance. That's definitely um, her best part of the movie and evidently really happened. So that was, yeah. that was really great. That woman seems formidable for sure. Um, and uh, honestly, some of my favorite work I've seen Florence Pugh do. She, I mean, it's kind of a small part, but um, uh, I mean, I could just keep gushing about the, the actors. But oh, last thing I'll say is that I didn't know that Josh Hartnett was in the movie <laughs> going into it. So that was like a total surprise to see him. And I know he's like kept like, a career going since like the heyday of the nineties, early two thousands, but with like Penny dreadful, but I never really watched that show. So when I saw him, I was like, Oh my gosh, he's such like a man now. And I was like, Oh, he's so cute. But, um, that that's not really great criticism or anything I'm giving there. But, uh, anyway, I appreciated seeing him in the movie and he is very handsome in it. Um, but a lot, a lot of handsome dudes and, uh, and beautiful women in Oppenheimer. So, uh, that's my take. Yeah, I, uh, I wish it was a little fresher in my mind because uh, I definitely had more to say. I will I, I will say that the first time I saw it, I was too focused on the structure of the movie. 
in, in taking in the story and things like that. And I was happy to watch it a second time because it allowed me to focus on the acting performances and the actual dialogue. IMAX versus 70 millimeter, they're both really good. You know, one, one, you get more height and one, you get more width. So, like the sweeping shots in New Mexico were yeah. just stunning in 70 millimeter. Uh, you saw it in 70 millimeter, I right? I did. IMAX, though, you know, uh, the way it would square up in people's heads <laughs> when they're talking. And then the, uh, the, the test, the Trinity test, was, uh, was really remarkable on IMAX. I think people a little disappointed. I mean, people love it. It's it's going gangbusters. But I think people thought it was going to be a movie about this guy who made the bomb, and it's just about the guy. And you hear a lot of complaints about, oh, the last act is slow. Well, I, I just disagree. I, I think all that stuff's fascinating. It's telling about the state of the country and McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the the closing of this man's story his his story is not creating this bomb that's that's not what it was that's the biggest part of his story but there's just more to it the acting performances are fantastic uh i, I told <laughs> i told james we saw it like opening weekend and we walked outside i said i swear i'm going to um quit my job and i'm just going to follow you around and if i think you look a bit peckish i'm just going to unsheath a peeled orange out of a handkerchief and say eat uh, this is his longtime Bernard friend. the elf is so good to see that actor. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he feeds him oranges a few times, but you know, look objectively again, Dunkirk Oppenheimer, probably one of those is going to go down as Nolan's best movie. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's it's a really incredible movie. The Trinity Test is breath just it going, is. choice to go silent was just. Unreal. There's some very, very, very interesting sound choices in this movie. Yes. And um, I already was the scene when he has to address the crowd after the bombs have been dropped. Um, Incredible. I was like, I already saw that clip being used at the Oscars for when they're showing the nominees for sound editing and mixing because I feel that that is employed. Yeah. The, the sound choices there to really great dramatic effect. Um, yeah. But um, and uh, I. You talking about the sweeping, beautiful landscapes of New Mexico, which there are. I really liked how he shot uh, UC Berkeley. I loved all the university scenes uh, that I was talking to Micah about. I think that might have been like kind of my favorite part of the movie was uh, in before they started the Manhattan Project. Um, Not taking away how great that segment was, too. But uh, I was I was just very uh, I was I was really hooked. Yeah. The one question I have, you know, the big scene at the end where Rami Malek, who doesn't speak for yeah. most of the movie and then finally speaks at the end, he was the one that broke things on Robert Downey Jr.'s character. I don't know how he knew all that. Yeah. I would it have liked that seem, explanation. Yeah. But. You're right. It was a little convenient that yeah. he didn't know all that. And my other only minor groan was the guy being like, there was a couple dissenters, this one senator from Massachusetts, and I went, oh, God, here we go. He's like, John Kennedy. I'm like, you didn't even need to say his name. We know who you're talking about. Uh, but it's just an incredible movie. I think the second time I watched it, I was able to focus on, you know, the color versus black and white. Color was Oppenheimer's perspective. Black and white was Robert Downey Jr.'s perspective. Um, I took in the the way the score played with the, everything that's going on. Score is masterful. I, I really noticed it on the second time. So I do want to say, James, who only here in spirit, 
uh, he actually did the audiobook on American Prometheus. Mm. And so he wanted to share some things. Um, Oppenheimer came from kind of a well-to-do family. He really did poison his teacher's apple, and he got busted for it, and they kind of saved his ass and pulled him out of there. Uh, Gene Tatlock, played by Florence Pugh, was described as Oppenheimer's love of his life. In fact, James was telling me he thought she was going to have a much bigger role mm. uh, in the movie than she did. Uh, her death and potential cover-up uh, of her death was by her father, who snuck in and burned letters before reporting her death. A lot of real weird shit going on with it around her. The scene in Oppenheimer when he suggests giving his son to his friend, uh, Chevalier, uh, is based on a real conversation, but the circumstances were different. After the birth of his daughter... Uh, Kitty went home to see her parents, taking the two-year-old with her. Uh, she had really bad postpartum, and then baby Catherine was left with Kitty's friend. Uh, so Robert would still visit. It wasn't quite as mm. bad as it sounded. At Los Alamos, Oppenheimer began an emotional affair with Ruth Tolman, who was the blonde woman he admitted to having an affair mm. with at the end of the movie. Oppenheimer had a lot of problems. Um, in 1954, Oppenheimer lived for several months each year in the island of St. John in U.S. Virgin Islands. He purchased a two-acre tract of land on a beach where he built a Spartan home on the beach. He spent considerable time sailing with his daughter and his family and his wife. Uh, he was a chain smoker. Yeah, no shit. Everyone was. Uh, uh, Tony Oppenheimer in 1969 was denied his position as translator for the United Nations because of the FBI refused to grant her a security clearance. Probably going back to all that stuff. Soon after losing out on the UN position and after two unsuccessful marriages, uh, she permanently relocated to St. John. She became a recluse in her family's mm -hmm. old cottage with few friends on a remote island. So Oppenheimer's story, I mean, he had reverberations that continued to affect his family throughout time. So just fascinating guy. You see why Nolan picked him as a subject. And it led to a very cinematic story. Yeah. 93% Rotten Tomatoes. My guess is best picture, best director, uh, Killy Murphy will be nominated. Robert Downey Jr. will be nominated. I think he will win. Uh, I now think Emily Blunt might be nominated. Mm -hmm. I really do. Uh, it'll win for sound, both sound. Uh, it'll be up for visuals. It will be up for wardrobe. It will lose to Barbie. It will be up for set design. It will lose to Barbie. Um, score, mm -hmm. adaptive screenplay. Anything else? Everything. It's going to be up for yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah. I think... As good, what I will say about Killian Murphy is, is as great as he is, it's not a very showy performance. I think he's been... But it's what was needed. It was what was needed, for sure. But I, it's not the kind of performance that I think will win an Oscar for him. So that's... I don't think he'll win, but yeah. he'll be nominated. Yeah. Uh, well, when the plan was to have James here, we're going to rank these movies. It's always funner with three people. <laughs> Should we give it a shot, just two of us? Yeah, I did my homework. I've okay. got my my ranking here. So, so I think we would agree. Definitely, last is following. Yeah, so great first effort. Cool. Um. So now I think we're probably going to be between Insomnia and Tenet. Yes, ding, ding, ding. I I think that Insomnia should be ranked a little high or. I always get a little confused when you're, we're talking about higher, lower, and these kind of things. So I think Insomnia is a better film than Tenet. So I think it should be at 10 and Tenet should be at 11. It's tough because I think Insomnia is a better made movie, but I think Tenet is more exciting and fun. Uh, but I think better movie needs to win out here. So we can do Tenet and then Insomnia. Okay. Uh, I think that... Uh, 
Oh, I Dark Knight Rises probably next. So I, in my rank, my personal ranking, I have Inception next, but uh, followed by The Prestige, and um, what? Dark Knight Rises over both of those movies? I do because I, I actually find The Dark Knight Rises to be. It have more entertaining elements, so that's why I ranked it. I'm a, I messed around with this, so I'd be willing to because originally I had the Dark Knight Rises in a in a worse spot on my ranking, but then I thought more about it and I was like, well, for entertainment factor, maybe it sh- I should be giving it some some credit there. So um, I'll tell you what, I beat you halfway. We can do the Prestige next, which I think is a better movie than Dark Knight Rises, but. You're right. Dark Knight Rises is, is funner. Yeah. And then can we do Inception? <laughs> I uh, wish I'd have gotten a rewatch in. That's tough, man. I don't know. I, I, I think I would still put Begins behind it. I don't know. Because oh. I'm, trying, I'm trying to weigh my personal feelings and my objective feelings. Because, like we said, Dunkirk and Oppenheimer are both great. But I love Interstellar and Inception. I really do. So... Oh man! I know I don't. I really think it should be Batman Begins and Inception. I don't know, because here's the thing: Batman Begins is not original material. Inception was this completely, wholly original idea. I, but Batman Begins just kind of plays out as a, as an easier watch that is like a little bit more. Again, I guess I'm coming back to what's more fun to watch, and I. I think Batman Begins is, but I'll say this: Interception got it was up for Best Picture. It okay. just got one more acclaim. All right, and all right. A lot of people all think right. Batman Begins is uh, forgettable. All right, then Inception. All right, so now what do we have left? We've got Interstellar, The Dark Knight, Dunkirk, and Memento. Oh God! Oh, so I, I think have we have Memento, Memento too pretty high. high. Now. I, so I actually have Memento as number three in my personal ranking. Um, I was going to, I was going to suggest throwing Interstellar, but now hearing you talk about how much you love, you love it. I don't know if I, I have the heart to tell you to put it after, uh, the, uh, what did we say? Was it after Inception? Yeah. Inception's the last one we did. I, I'd be willing to put Memento in that spot. I, I I think it kind of, I forgot about it. I think it kind of got higher than it should have, my personally. Okay. So we got Dark Knight, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Oppenheimer. Do you, we agree on which, well, are we going to jump to number one already? And we then can. Kinda what work? have you got number one? The Dark Knight, I think, should be number one. Oh, I don't think so. I've done Kirk as number two. but Really? Yeah. And Oppenheimer is, uh, I guess now. I feel like three. I would do oh, Dunkirk, guess. Dark Knight, Interstellar, Oppenheimer. Dunkirk, Dark Knight, Interstellar, Oppenheimer. That's weighing everything together. I mean, I think Dunkirk's a better mate. Oh, man, I don't know. Dark Knight is. I think Dark Knight is what made Nolan Nolan. It is. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to Dunkirk, Dark Knight, Interstellar, Oppenheimer. Well, I think I'm going to. Oh, shit. Am I going to do Interstellar at one? <laughs> you're, gonna, you're putting Interstellar at one for your list? I mean, but I would also put Inception higher. That's that's tough because Oppenheimer is, I think this is the one that's going to finally get him the respect. Oh, it has. Yeah, and he's going to get all the. I think he's going to get the Oscars and stuff. I think Dunkirk and Oppenheimer should touch on the list. 
So you want to do Dark Knight, Dunkirk, Oppenheimer, Interstellar? I don't think Interstellar should be number one. Okay. All right. I can. All right. I'll tell you what. I'll do Dark Knight, Interstellar, Dunkirk, Oppenheimer. So Oppenheimer one, Dunkirk two, Interstellar three, Dark Knight four. Oh, I just think Dark Knight should be higher, but I know I'm, uh, I'm, I'm giving you, I'm giving you something here. We gotta meet. We don't have a third person. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay, so our list is coming in at twelve, following, and then Tenet, and then Insomnia, then Prestige, Dark Knight Rises, Batman Begins, Inception, Memento, The Dark Knight, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Oppenheimer. Listen, that's not how I'd rank it out, but that's what makes this show fun. <laughs> James, we needed you here. Oh, it would have been so much worse <laughs> if he was here. We would have needed another hour. Uh, so, Christopher Nolan, what's next? He really wants to do a Bond movie. All right. He's been open about it. Uh, and he's I'm, a Brit. So. I'm kind of surprised. He wants to do something that he would have. The Broccoli family is not going to give him full control. Yeah. But uh, maybe he's tired. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see how I, the Oscars go for him. I think, I think he, working in a Bond vein is something I'm very excited by. So, Well, this was fun. Christopher Nolan, big fan. Look, I always look forward to watching his next movie, whatever it is. Uh, Chelsea, should we do recommendations this episode, or do you want to just score Oppenheimer? Um, I think it's been out long enough we can just give a recommendation. Yeah. You got anything ready to go? Um, you go first. Yeah. So not too long ago, I rewatched a movie that I think is criminally underrated, and that is About Schmidt. Starring Jack Nicholson. Uh, Still never seen that. I really love this movie. Um, I don't know why. I mean, he was nominated for Best Actor. He's still Nicholson. He's great in it. There's just this great touches of human connection in this movie and the human condition and struggling with introspection and your world around you not being quite what you thought it was. Uh, It has one of my very favorite movie endings of all time that always makes me tear up. Um, it's very funny and very beautiful and more complex than I think people realize on the surface. I, I definitely encourage people to watch it. If you haven't seen it in a long time, watch it again and take in the human elements of it. Uh, I'm actually going to give it a three. I think it's a really, really emotional, beautiful movie. So. Who directed that again? I, I don't remember. Is it, is it, it's not Spike Jones. No, it's it? not no. Spike Jones. Okay. It's somebody who's done other stuff, but I can't remember his okay. name. Okay. Um, I, um, I'll just go with what is, uh, most that I can remember watching most recently that isn't Christopher Nolan. And that is, I rewatched Meet the Parents. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) I, um, that was, that was fun to be put back in that mindset of like, that 90s, late 90s, I think is when that movie came out, early 2000s. Somewhere around there. I comedy. I was a senior in high school and it was really popular, so it's got to be early 2000s. Yeah, and we all know like the the classic lines about the nipples, can you milk me? And, um, <laughs> and those lines are funny, but I think my biggest takeaway watching it this time was appreciating like there's subtleties in the in the expressions that Robert De Niro and Ben Ben Stiller are making in the movie that I think are funnier than some of the lines that they're even saying. So, and like this, this, that moment when Ben Stiller is on the roof chasing after Jinx the cat and he's just, 
he's been chewing that Nicorette gum and he's finally found a cigarette and he just looks all, he's so disheveled. And I find that kind of comedy in the movie, like more of the physical comedy of it to be um, the stuff that I came away with finding to be even funnier than those like classic like movie trailer lines that we all remember and laughed at. So, um, and honestly, the movie there, I think it holds up uh, in terms of like, it doesn't say anything that's like too offensive to viewers nowadays. I, I, I would say there might, might be a few things that I'm blanking on right now, but, uh, but I would give it a two for meet the parents. I don't, it, it wasn't as like, knee slapper knee slapping like hilarious as i i remember the conversation being around it but it's uh there's there's still some stuff to appreciate in it and laugh at we love that ben stiller uh well we don't know <laughs> Was that what, sarcastic no 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 i do love ben stiller uh i don't know what we're doing next but we'll have something for you here soon so uh we are not on twitter anymore because screw twitter uh we are still on instagram the marquee spotlight uh, I am on Letterboxd, Spence84. Uh, and if you are enjoying the show, please like, share, write a review, tell a friend, or do whatever you want because you're an adult. Thank you. I, yes, please do all of that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm feeling a little rummy now. All right. Well, uh, for the Marquee Spotlight, I'm Spencer Bailey. I'm Chelsea Burnett. We'll see you. The Marquee Spotlight is recorded in Portland with music composed and produced by Josh Colopy and cover art created by Taylor Ingle. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates on new episodes. And if you like the show, please write a review and share with others. 